We say those words, you are the promise and you are the keeper. And so if you, you're here today and you're wondering and you're questioning, what does God offer me? The answer is really, really simple. The answer, friends, is that God is what God offers. He offers you all of himself. He, he's given his son, Jesus Christ. The benefit of following Jesus, it's, it's not just freedom from guilt. It's not just freedom from shame. It's not just spiritual healing or even physical healing. These are all byproducts of knowing Jesus. The benefit of following Jesus is you get him. You don't just get the promise. You get the keeper of that promise. That is really good news for us this morning. Amen. Amen. Father, we thank you so much. We rejoice in this promise that you are what you offer. That everything we try to use in this world for the satisfaction of our souls, Father, help us today to find those things bitter, to find them empty. Help us to see that they will leave us wanting. But what you offer us is what our souls are desperately seeking. So Father, we lay ourselves before you today as we consider once again what it means to surrender ourselves wholly and completely to your son, Jesus, at the call to follow him. Give us the courage to lay ourselves bare before you today. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would search our hearts that you would use the word this morning, Father, to convict us, to correct us, to both encourage us and, when necessary, to rebuke us for where we have fallen out of step with who you've called us to be. So, Father, we ask today, will you, through your word, edify your church and glorify your name? Sanctify us in truth. Your word is truth. Will you speak it to our hearts today? We ask all these things in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. And everyone said, amen, amen. You can go ahead and have a seat. And as you find your seats, if you're not there already, I'm gonna encourage you to turn with me in your Bible. Matthew chapter eight, verses 18 through 22 is where we're gonna spend our time together this morning. If you're our guest, my name's Taylor and I serve you across as lead pastor. We're honored to have you worshiping with us today. And last week, our church family kicked off a short message series where we're working through statements in the Gospel of Matthew where Jesus invites people to follow him. And we're considering together as a church family for a few weeks what it means to follow Jesus, not on our terms or on the church culture's terms, but actually to follow Jesus on his terms as he called others to follow him. So again, this morning, Matthew chapter 8, we'll be looking together at verses 18 through 22. If you've been with us for the last several months, particularly as we studied together the Sermon on the Mount, you have heard Dietrich Bonhoeffer's name at least three or four times. Um, Bonhoeffer, we quoted him a lot during the Sermon on the Mount because his reflections on the Sermon on the Mount were just so rich. And there are few people, I would argue, in the history of Christianity 
who have lived out the Sermon on the Mount more faithfully than Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And particularly here in the West, as, as our culture continues to secular, secularize and as we see ideologies and worldviews emerge that are completely incompatible with the gospel of Jesus Christ, you and I are going to increasingly need the examples of men like Dietrich Bonhoeffer who chose to be light in the midst of wickedness and darkness. If you don't know Bonhoeffer's background, he was a German pastor in the late 1930s uh, who served as the Nazi regime began to dominate the European landscape. And uh, throughout those years, at great risk to himself, Bonhoeffer publicly rebuked the atrocities that were being committed by Hitler and the Nazi regime. And more than this, his rebuke was to the church for its silence and its cowardice in the midst of emerging and rising evil. And it was during this time Bonhoeffer wrote his most famous book, The Cost of Discipleship. I'm just curious this morning, by show of hands, how many of you have read The Cost of Discipleship by Dietrich Bonhoeffer? That's not nearly enough hands. And so I just want to challenge you, as you leave this place today, go to Amazon. Uh, don't tell them I sent you. I don't get a cut for this, by the way. Uh, go to Amazon, order The Cost of Discipleship. It's just under the banner of discipleship, usually now the, the, the modern versions of this. But read The Cost of Discipleship by Bonhoeffer. It's one of the enduring themes of this book is his fiery rebuke of what he called cheap grace. Now, I'm going to talk about this more in depth next week. We're going to look at a long Bonhoeffer quote next week where he fully defines what cheap grace is. But at its base foundation, cheap grace is wanting the benefits of being a follower of Jesus Christ, but not being willing to pay the cost of being a follower of Jesus Christ. As Bonhoeffer saw it, all over Europe, there were professing Christians who were eager to receive eternal life in the name of Jesus, but they were not willing to endure physical death or persecution or suffering for following Jesus. They wanted the benefits of following Jesus, but they did not want to pay the cost. And sadly, this same mentality has infected the minds of millions of professing Christians in the West today. The base concern, as I shared last week, that's that's shaping this message series is that here in the West, and particularly here in the Bible Belt South, Nominal Christianity has become so normal that when we see normal Christianity, we label it as radical. Things that should just be normal for every single follower of Jesus Christ, things that should be basic, lived out, day-to-day, Christianity 101, Sermon on the Mount types of stuff, when we see someone actually doing this, we're just blown away by it. And so we see this, there's this version of Christianity, kind of a varsity level version of Christianity that's reserved for for pastors and and for missionaries and for elite Christians, but the rest of us kind of just have a little bit of a different version. And what we said last week is what desperately needs to happen in communities just like Beaufort, South Carolina, is for what we call radical Christianity to become normal so that normal Christianity can replace nominal Christianity. And that's what we began looking at together last week. Last week, we saw the call of to discipleship from Matthew chapter 4, and we saw that this call is a call to follow Jesus Christ and to forsake everything else. So the call to follow Jesus is a call to Jesus over home. It's a call to Jesus over work. It's a call to Jesus over money, over family, and over life itself. And today, we're jumping right into the middle of Matthew 8, so I want to give us just a little bit of context here before we dive in. 
Last week we saw Jesus call his first disciples, and that happens right before he preaches the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7. Matthew chapter 8 comes right at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And as Blaine mentioned just a moment ago, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, we see that the crowds were astonished at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority. So Matthew 7 closes with us seeing that the crowds were mesmerized by Jesus' message. But then in Matthew 8, we see that they're mesmerized by his miracles. In the first 17 verses of Matthew 8, Jesus heals a man of leprosy. He heals the servant of a Roman centurion without even going to his home. He just speaks the word and the servant is healed. And then a few verses prior to verse 18, we see uh, him heal Peter's mother-in-law of a serious fever. We see him healing many others who were demon-possessed and who were sick. He heals all of them. And so Jesus is starting to garner a massive following. He's skyrocketing in popularity. But if you study the gospel accounts closely, this is what you'll begin to notice about the ministry of Jesus. As Jesus ministered, any time the crowd got bigger, his teaching got harder. The closer and closer and closer Jesus got to the cross, the more narrow the narrow path became. And that's important for us to recognize, church, because for the last 30 to 40 years, what what has infected churches all in our culture is is what has been preached by many proponents of what has become known as the church growth movement, where they have proposed essentially the exact opposite of what Jesus did in his ministry. For for many proponents of the church growth movement, that the approach is not for the message to get harder as the crowd gets bigger. For proponents of this movement, that the approach has been to keep the teaching easy so the crowd will get bigger. And Jesus takes an almost exact opposite approach in his ministry. Like the German Christians that Bonhoeffer rebuked in the 1930s, many of us, I fear, are eager to receive the benefits of following Jesus. But we're not willing to pay the cost. Like the crowds in Matthew chapter 8, man, we want the healing. We want the deliverance. We want salvation. We want acceptance. We want grace. We want mercy. We want love. We want to be noticed. We want to hear Jesus' teaching. We want all these things. We want the benefits of being disciples. But the question for us today is, are we willing to pay the cost of discipleship? So last week, we saw the call to discipleship. This morning from Matthew 8, we're going to see the cost. So from Matthew chapter 8, let's read again verses 18 through 20. It says, Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So what is the cost of discipleship, we see first from Matthew chapter 8 that following Jesus requires an unwavering faith that trusts in his provision. Verse 18 says that he saw a crowd. He sees a crowd and he gives orders to go to the other side. And this is fairly standard for Jesus throughout the gospel accounts. Oftentimes, uh, Jesus and his disciples, they would work, they would serve, they would minister for days on end to the point that they were just physically exhausted. So occasionally Jesus would would take them away to to a more desolate place so that they could have rest for themselves or so he could spend more intentional time with them, expanding more in-depth on the things that he had been teaching the crowds. But another reason why Jesus would draw away from crowds is because Jesus knew just how fickle the hearts of people could be. As fallen human beings, we have a really bad tendency to jump on popular bandwagons for better or for worse. 
So whether it's fashion or, or philosophy, we have a terrible tendency as human beings to be drawn into things just because they're popular. And the crowds that were following Jesus were no exception to this. So as Jesus became more popular, what we see through the gospel accounts is that his message became more pointed. And we see two examples of this in this text. The first example is the scribe. The scribes were, if you don't, don't, don't know, they were basically lawyers. They were experts at interpreting the Old Testament law and applying it to everyday life. And this is important for us to see that this was a scribe, because if you go to the end, again, of Matthew chapter 7 and the Sermon on the Mount, you'll see that the crowds were astonished at Jesus' teaching and were told it's because he taught them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. That, that's a really important connection from Matthew chapter 7 to Matthew chapter 8, Jesus taught with authority because he was the authority. His ability to teach and to expound upon and to explain and to interpret God's law, it was unlike anything the crowds had ever heard before from their own scribes and religious teachers. So it's not a small detail that the first person we see in Matthew's gospel, besides Jesus' 12 disciples, who says that they want to follow Jesus, is a scribe. That's not an insignificant detail. The scribes were the ones that the people were looking to for the reading and the interpretation and the application. And here is a scribe looking to Jesus and saying, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Now, you and I look at this today and we say, man, what a win, right? But like what, what a convert to, to win over to the right side. Scri scribes were prominent. They were influential. They, they held significant sway over the people. Before we planted the church, I, I did student ministry for 12 years. And especially early on in student ministry, almost every philosophy of student ministry that I was being discipled in and that was being promoted told me, hey, whenever you go into a school and you're doing ministry, go look for the most popular kid. So, so it was go look for the captain of the football team, go look for the prom queen, go look for the class president, because those are students that carry significant weight and influence in the school. And man, if you win them to Jesus, then many others will follow suit and do the same. And, and at face value, there, there seems to be some, some pretty good value there, right? Like it's okay, these are influential people and, and their conversion would, would potentially impact the lives of, of maybe hundreds of other students. And so there seems to be some credibility but, but church, I think we need to acknowledge that's almost the exact opposite approach that Jesus took when he chose his own disciples. We very quickly forget that the reason chose, Jesus chose his 12 disciples is because nobody else chose them. The reason he chose them is because they were available, right? That this wasn't like National Signing Day and they had five hats on the table like, I guess I'm picking Team Jesus. And Jesus was like, great, five-star recruit. That's not what was happening here. Jesus didn't choose them because of who they were. He chose them in spite of who they were. And that, that's the picture that we see here today. You might expect Jesus to see this scribe respond and say, that's the kind of commitment I'm looking for. That's the kind of person I'm willing to enlist. The person who says, I will follow you wherever you go. Because is that not how we saw the disciples respond last week? They dropped their nets. They left the boats. They, they left their family members. They left their homes and they followed Jesus. Should Jesus not be excited about this? But again, he knows how fickle the hearts of man can be. And so this man says to Jesus, the scribe says to Jesus, teacher, I'll follow you wherever you go. And how does Jesus respond? He says, well, foxes have holes. Birds have nests. But me, the son of man, I have nowhere to lay my head. What he was communicating to this scribe was there's a cost in following me. 
that there's going to be a cost in following me. He said, the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Now throughout the gospel accounts, son of man is the favorite designation that Jesus uses for himself. He uses this over 80 times in the gospel accounts. And some have argued that the reason that he does this is because he's, he's trying to relate to us on more of a human level and, and meet us in our humanity. And while this title does emphasize his humanity as one who was born of a virgin woman and his humility as the one who traded the riches of heaven for the poverty of earth, we need to understand that biblically this title primarily emphasizes his deity. If you go to the Old Testament, the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 7, verses 9 through 14, it's the most prominent prophecy using the title Son of Man. And it says that the Son of Man is one who came on the clouds of heaven. It says he was given dominion and glory and an everlasting kingdom that will never pass away. So when Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man, he is saying to others, I am the one who's come on the clouds. I am the one who has all dominion, who has all authority, who all glory will be given to. I am the king whose kingdom will have no end. And so what's he communicating to the scribe by using this title? Well, first he's showing the scribe that following him may cost us material comfort. He says, even as the son of man, even as the son of man, the one with an everlasting kingdom that has no end, he says, I don't have a place to spend the night. Remember, the scribes were, were men of great importance. They were great prominence and social standing. And so we can safely assume that most of the scribes lived materially comfortable lives. So he says he'll follow Jesus wherever he goes. But Jesus says, I hope you understand that means you don't quite know where you'll even spend the night. Following him was going to come with, with a cost. He said, the son of man has nowhere even to lay his head. Can't even tell you where you'll be sleeping tonight. Remember when our, our church plant team was forming in the fall of 2015, I asked, I think there were five people in the first service. Is there anybody in the room that was a part of our original launch team? Like end of the Tim's over here, Paxson's over here, Rogerson's are over here. So we got a couple others that are in the back of the room. So just a handful in the first service, handful here. And, and so we, we began assembling you know, a team to, to launch this, uh, this church and this congregation back in the fall uh, of 2015. And from November, for about the next six months, we had open house meetings, we had interest meetings that, that a couple hundred people attended, but, but we were really giving the worst sales pitch of all time, if I'm being honest. But like the number one question that people would come in and ask at all these interest meetings, say, well, where, where are you guys going to meet on Sunday mornings? And listen, for the first six months that our launch team was forming, we had no idea where we were even going to be holding worship services. We had, we had no idea. We, we had some ideas. We were trying to sort that out. We're trying to work that out. But, but nobody committed to that team because of a facility. Nobody committed to that team because of ministries that we had. Hardly anybody on that team had ever heard me preach a sermon before. They really had no idea. I'd never been a lead pastor before. And, and some of us were going to be in, in new positions that we'd really never carried before and having responsibility we never had before. There's not a single person that said yes to that team who knew where we were going to even be gathering for worship on Sunday morning. And so, so if we can kind of put this up against the picture of, of Matthew chapter 8. Yeah, there was a crowd of people that was interested. They loved the idea of a church plan, but there was a much smaller group of people that was willing to say, yes, Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. Didn't commit to it because of material comfort. Didn't commit to it because we knew the road was going to be easy. They commit to it because Jesus called and they said yes. Church, I, I want to challenge us with that because we're, we're in a season right now, man, even, even what you experience here, I know it doesn't always feel like much, 
We're meeting at a YMCA and we got to do this pipe and drape everywhere and just kind of make this happen on a weekly basis. And we're about to move into a facility, Lord willing, in the next few weeks. I hope you understand those of you who are experiencing all of this and all of what we're about to experience. You are sitting in and experiencing the faithful sacrifice of a couple dozen people. Because six, seven years ago, about two dozen people put their yes on the table, said, I will follow Jesus wherever he leads. You're experiencing what you experience today. And I want to challenge us for that, because what does it look like for now several hundred people to put that same yes on the table and say, Lord, we will follow you wherever we go. It may cost us material comfort. It's going to require stepping out in risk. There's no guarantees about what's going to happen. So beyond material comfort, Jesus shows it may cost physical safety. He says to the scribes, his foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests. You know, foxes' den and a bird's nest, they don't just provide them with a material home, they provide them with defense against predators that threaten their safety. And in fact, dens and nests are so vital to the safety of foxes and birds that most states have laws that forbid tampering with them. In some cases, depending on the fox, depending on the bird, there might even be federal laws that have steep consequences if we break them. So Jesus warns him, if you come with me, you're, living, you're leaving comfort and safety behind. Jesus prepared his disciples for the reality of, of persecution, for the reality of discomfort. He did this all throughout his earthly ministry. He didn't talk about these things like they were a possibility. He promised to them. He said this would happen. This is John 15, verse 18 through 21. Jesus says, if the world hates you, know that it's hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you were not of the world... But I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. Church, please don't miss this this morning. Jesus promised. He promised. He didn't say it was possible. He promised that if we seek to follow him faithfully. We are going to face the persecution and pushback of this world. And then we need to hear that this morning. We need to hear this because, church, I fear for, for so many of us, we, we are part of a generation. Man, we need to be liked. We need to be seen. We need to be celebrated. We need to be accepted. There's a lot of uh, documentaries that have recently explored this, this phenomenon. One, a more popular one is from the comedian Bo Burnham. You know, and he, he, he talks about this a little bit more in depth. And by the way, that's not the most kid-friendly documentary. I'm just going to give you the, the warning in advance on this. Explore some important issues, but, 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 but maybe not the, the best language all the way through. So just a heads up on that. But, but he talks about this phenomenon where, where it, essentially what has happened for so many is that our real lives, like our physical lives, like you and I are experiencing right here in the moment, for so many what has happened is that our real lives have become nothing more than a theater and a stage for us to perform for an online digital audience. And so, so everything we do in our life, with, with our family, things that we do with the church, things we're doing as we follow Jesus, our service to the community, if we're not careful, what ends up happening is our life becomes a stage performance that we conduct in order to receive the approval and the affirmation of an online audience. And man, what does success there look like? It looks like thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of followers, it looks like likes and, and comments. It looks like shares. It, it looks like things going viral. That in our minds is what success looks like. 
And and so so many of us struggle with the words of Jesus because as followers of Christ, we've bought into this and we've deceived ourselves into believing that success in this world means receiving the attention and the affirmation and the approval of this world. And then we look at something Jesus says in John 15, the struggle here is that for so many of us, we have absolutely no framework whatsoever for the possibility that success in following Jesus actually looks like receiving hatred from this world. We have no framework for this. There's an important detail in verse 19 that I want to make sure we don't miss today. When the scribe comes to Jesus, he doesn't refer to him as the son of man. He refers to him as teacher. And here's why that's such an important detail. is because all throughout Matthew's gospel account, the only people who call Jesus teacher are the people who don't truly believe that he is who he says he is. The only people who call him teacher are the people who don't truly believe in him. And I fear that this is how many of us know Jesus. We know him as the teacher. We know him as the astonishing teacher who expounds God's word in ways we never heard. We know him as the miracle worker who reaches out to touch those no one else would touch. We know him as the friend who chooses the outcast. Are these not the things that we love about Jesus? We love that he teaches. We love that he heals. We love that he's a friend to sinner. And so we're eager to follow that version of Jesus as long as he doesn't call me to give up anything in return. Like we want all of these things, but the moment it requires surrendering everything to a king whose kingdom has no end and will never pass away, suddenly we're out. Church, it's not enough to know Jesus as the teacher. It's not enough to know him as a miracle worker, to know him as a healer. It's not enough to know him as the friend of sinners. We must know him as the son of man. We must know him as the king whose kingdom has no end. We must unconditionally surrender everything to our king. And the way that we can know that we know that we know him as the son of man, the way we can know that we know this is that we are eager to leave everything else behind but we, because we trust that even if we leave it all behind, we're gonna find everything in him that we need every step of the way. Following him requires unwavering faith that trusts in his provision. Verses 21 through 22, we go on to learn that another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me. Everybody say, follow me. Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. So it requires an unwavering faith that trusts in his provision. Second, we see that following Jesus requires an undivided heart that is surrendered to his mission. So let's, let's look closely here at the two examples we're given in this text today. The first example was of a scribe who was eager to follow Jesus, but the second example is of a disciple who is hesitant about following Jesus. And I want to give a little bit of a clarity here because th- these two verses tend to cause a lot of frustration and confusion for people on, on a couple of, for a couple of reasons. You know, first, at face value, we look at the response of Jesus, and it kind of feels like Jesus is harsh in his reply, right? Like, we look at that, like, man, the guy's father, like, he's either not doing well or he's passed away, and this, this seems like Jesus is being insensitive. Like, we would expect Jesus maybe to reply by saying, oh, of course you need to attend to that. Go be with your family. Go be present. Take care of your responsibilities. We're just going across the water. You catch up to us when you can. That, that's, that's how we might expect Jesus to, to respond in, in this. And so at face value, it seems like, man, is Jesus is he being harsh here? Is he being insensitive here? Well, you know, what we saw last week is this is what makes Jesus different than any other teacher. When Jesus calls disciples to follow him, he's not just some ordinary rabbi. We see that he's the Messiah, 
That's why Peter and Andrew and James and John, that's why they drop their nets and they leave their father and they leave their boat and they go after Jesus because they've recognized him already as the Messiah. He's not just another teacher. He's the creator, savior, Messiah who's now calling his people to him. Colossians 1, Paul said that all things are created by Jesus, through Jesus, and for Jesus. And so as the one who has created us, Jesus has every single right to demand everything from us. And so so even if it did feel a little bit harsh, Jesus has the authority to call us to do whatever it is he desires to do. And the second reason why this passage can be confusing is because it can be difficult to discern what exactly this disciple meant when he said, first, let me go and bury my father. So a couple possibilities here. The first possibility is that this disciple's father had just passed away and he needed to finish the funeral and burial arrangements. Second possibility, though, is that the father is actually still living. In this time and culture, it was the responsibility of the firstborn to take care of the funeral arrangements for a deceased parent and to settle the estate. And, and so it's possible then that this man's father was still living. And what he was saying is, let me go bury my father. He was saying, I, I need to wait until my parents have passed so I can fulfill my social obligation and responsibility, and then I can come follow you. And here's why I think the second scenario is a little bit more likely first century Jewish culture, when someone passed away, there were only 24 hours to bury the body, and it was very, very busy work. So it's very unlikely that if someone's family member had just physically died in that time frame, that they would just be there with the crowd listening to the teachings of Jesus. They would have been busy with those funeral arrangements. So what's more plausible here is that this is what this disciple was wanting to do. He was wanting to wait weeks or even months or maybe even years, depending on his age, before family members passed away, before his parents passed away, so that he could be present to fulfill his social obligations in making the funeral arrangements and settling the estate. Is that a bad desire? No. There's nothing evil about that. There's nothing wicked about that. It was just acceptable cultural behavior, that this is what you do. If you're a son and the father passes away, that's your responsibility. But how does Jesus respond to this? He says, you follow me. You follow me and you leave the dead to bury their own dead. Follow me in, in the, this context, in this verse, it's a present imperative. So Jesus is communicating something that would require ongoing commitment. And leave is a verb that carries with it the sense of, of immediacy and urgency. It was a decisive action that he was going to have to take in that moment. In the same way that those who are physically dead can do nothing for themselves, Jesus is showing us here that the spiritually dead are concerned with all the wrong things. So what Jesus is telling him here is is not that going to bury his father is unimportant. He's just showing him in this moment, there's something that's more important, and it's following me. He shows him that following him will test our closest relationships. He says, I want to go bury my father. I want to be here. I want to fulfill my obligation when that time comes. And so listen, let's not miss this this morning. He's not just talking about a friend. He's not talking about a distant cousin or relative. He's not talking about a coworker. He's talking about his father. Again, this isn't a wicked desire. It's not an evil desire. He just wants to fulfill the expected social obligations that were expected of him as a child. You know, my, my dad passed away in December of 2011. Had cancer for four years and then passed away unexpectedly uh, mid-December 2011. You know, as I'm reading this passage over the last couple of weeks, as I'm, as I'm wrestling with it this morning, I'm just putting, I'm trying to put myself in this guy's shoes. I'm trying to put myself in his position. I'm just asking myself, under what circumstances would I have been unavailable to help with my dad's funeral arrangements when that time came? 
Like if I'm at the funeral home, I'm with my mom and I'm with my brother and I'm with my sister, under what circumstances would I have been unavailable to be there and be present? And man, I just thought through a couple of different scenarios and a couple of different situations. And no matter what reason I came up with, none of them felt like good reasons. None of them felt like good reasons. None of them left me with the feeling of, of, of comfort that it was okay for me to step away from this. And so, so I hope we see this morning what Jesus is calling this man to. It's going to touch his closest relationship. It's going to touch his closest relationship. It's a relationship with his father, relationship with his family. We're going to look at this more in depth next week. Matthew 10, 37 through 39 is the passage we're going to look at next Sunday. And Jesus says here, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Church, following Jesus will test our closest relationships. It will test our closest relationship. And here, this man's closest relationship is being put to the test. But more than this, because of the nature of those relationships, it will test our highest allegiances. Now, I want to just clarify here a little bit more and, and help us maybe understand the point that Jesus is trying to make here in verses 21 through 22. I don't think Jesus is, is in any way or any capacity trying to diminish the significance of children taking care of funeral arrangements for their parents. I don't think Jesus is doing that in any way. The Ten Commandments, in fact, command us, honor your father and your mother. And so, so being a part of, of these types of things, it was really about upholding your family's honor and, and making sure we're fulfilling that and, and upholding that obligation. So it's not that Jesus is saying that's unimportant. I think we would misread what he's saying if we came to that conclusion. He's not saying that burying family members is unimportant. What he is saying is that following him is more important than life's most important pressing duties. I want to just ask you the question this morning. What's the most important responsibility that you currently have, either with family or vocationally? Maybe you're, you're a medical professional and you're managing seriously ill patients. Maybe you're a teacher that's working with underprivileged, struggling students. Maybe you're an officer who's overseeing dozens of Marines. Maybe you're a banker who's overseeing significant assets or financial investments. Even more specific to this passage, what social obligations do you feel pressured by your family to fulfill? Is, is there a pressure? Is there unspoken or unspoken that you're one day going to take over the family business? Is there an expectation that you move closer to them, live closer to them, visit more frequently? Is there an expectation that you, you show up with, for every family gathering, for every major holiday? Listen, none of these things are evil things, are they? None of these are evil things. But here Jesus shows us, as important as these things are, there's something that is way more important, infinitely more important, and it is following him when he calls. Following Jesus when he calls is more important than the most important obligations that you and I have in this life. These are, they're all important things, but listen, if you and I are not careful, this is what's going to end up happening. If we're not careful, we might allow good and even very, very noble things and commitments to become idols that prevent us from faithfully following Jesus Christ. Listen, I think this is some of Satan's finest work. What Satan will do is he will use good, noble, honorable commitments to prevent you from following Jesus and to keep you running on the treadmill of the spiritually dead. And here's the deception of it all. We'll be busy. It will feel like godly activity, but in reality, we will just be the spiritually dead among the spiritually dead. Guys, we can't hide it this morning. 
When Jesus calls us to follow him, he's going to find the pressure point of our highest allegiance. Whether it's our homes, whether it's our work, our family, our money, or our lives, that's where he's going to press. He's going to call us out of the thing that we hold most highly, that we hold most dearly. Eventually, that line is going to be drawn in the sand, and you and I are going to have to make the decision whether or not we're going to follow him. Now, these men provide two very different examples for us this morning. I want to compare and contrast these two a bit. They're really on opposite ends of the spectrum. You know, the first man is a scribe, and he's overly eager. He's, he's, man, he, he's talking a big game, right? I will follow you wherever you go. He's overly eager. The second man, the disciple, was overly hesitant. He calls Jesus Lord, but he's hesitant about following him as he calls The scribe said, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. I'll drop everything I'm doing and follow you now. The second disciple said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. So it was, I want to follow you, but I've got some other stuff that I need to do first. Here's the contrast that's most fascinating to me about these two examples today. For the first man, he says he's unconditionally surrendered, but he only calls Jesus teacher. He says, I'm all in. I'll follow you wherever you go. But he's not willing with his mouth to acknowledge Jesus as Lord. He's only willing to recognize him as teacher. The other man has the opposite problem. He's willing to say with his mouth, you are Lord, but he's not willing to unconditionally surrender his life to Jesus. And I just wonder, where are you at on that spectrum today? Are you on the spectrum of the first man who's saying, man, you're talking a big game. Like I'm all in on this thing. Everything outwardly seems to communicate that you'll follow Jesus wherever he leads, but deep down inside, you're not really ready to acknowledge him as Lord. You know him as teacher, but you don't know him as the son of man. Are you on the opposite extreme? Is the verbal profession sound? Is it orthodox? I'll call Jesus Lord, but do your actions betray you? Because when he actually calls you to himself, you're not willing to unconditionally surrender everything to follow him. And so as we close today, well, I just want to leave us with three questions that help shape our application and response to the text that we've walked through together this morning. Here's the first question. Let's just, church, let's open our hearts to the Lord here. Let's ask the Lord to soften our hearts and let's evaluate our lives honestly. First question is, will you move when he calls or will you stay with the crowd? Will you move when he calls or will you stay with the crowd. Man, some of us are like, I am all in. I'm 100% in. But if we're being honest, we say we're surrendered, but we've got a whole lot of things that we're not willing to let go. And I just wonder, what's holding you back? What's keeping you in the crowd? What's keeping you from making the trip across the water with Jesus and his disciples? Is it your safety? Is it your security? Is it comfort? Is it convenience? Like, like the scribe, listen, maybe it's your spiritual resume. Maybe, maybe your biggest problem is actually you. It's all of your successes in the name of Jesus that are actually keeping you from following Jesus. Are you willing to let these things go? If I could just unapologetically deploy the cliche this morning, for some of us what has to start happening is the walk needs to start matching the talk. Man, we talk a big game. I'm all in. Isn't this exactly what Peter did the night before Jesus went to the cross? I will follow you to the death. And what's Jesus say to Peter? Peter, <laughs> before the sun comes up, bro. Three times. Three times you're going to say you don't even know who I am. And even in that moment, Jesus in his grace and his mercy, he anticipated Peter's failure and he caught him on the other side. Some of us talk a big game. Do our actions actually match up with what we're saying? We need to quit pretending that Jesus is just another teacher. 
Because he's not just another teacher. He's not just another religious option among a pantheon of religious option. And we need to recognize today that even if it means losing the place where we lay our head down at night, we're losing it to follow the king with a kingdom that will never come to an end. And he's going to give us everything that we need in return. Second question, will you lay down comfort at the call to follow him? And for some of us, this might mean the comfort of security and home. For others, it might mean the comfort and security of family. For many, if not most of us today, it's laying down the comfort and the security of needing to be liked and accepted by everybody. And listen, I just want to clarify again this morning, in no way, shape, or form are we mandated to be jerks for Jesus. Amen? Like, that, like we're not justified in that. In fact, the world should, should see the love of God in us, the joy of God in us, the grace of God in us, the peace of God. So this is not permission for you to go be a punk on Facebook all in the name of Jesus, okay? But let's make sure we're, we're clear on these things. We're not called to be jerks for Jesus, but we do need to acknowledge and accept is that Jesus promised if we want to faithfully follow him, we're going to be hated by this world. And then what we have to fight even in that same thread is, is kind of this victimized and, and self-loathing type of mentality. It's this, woe is me, following Jesus is hard, being a Christian is hard. Church, we do not walk around in a spirit of defeat when we follow a Savior who overcame the grave. We need to recognize it. And listen, I want to make sure we step into this tension very, very well. As you're watching the news during the week and you're, you're seeing all the fear-mongering and all the channels and all the problems in this world, absolutely, as a follower of Jesus, be informed. Understand that, man, Satan is at work. He's, he's trying to infiltrate the church with corrupt ideologies and, and philosophy, and he wants us to, to try to synchronize our worldview with the world's worldview in a way that's only going to lead to our destruction. Be aware of that, but for goodness sake, do not live your life in fear. Do not live your life paralyzed in fear by what this world is going to throw at us. Jesus promised, yes, you'll have trouble in the world, but don't forget he's already overcome the world. I do not want our congregation. I want you to be informed. I want you to be aware. I want you to be sensitive to the problems and equipped to engage them. But my goodness, I do not want to see Cross Community Church walking and living in fear. We have a Savior who walked out of a grave. And we're called to walk in the victory that belongs to him. And as we walk in that victory, we recognize, man, the enemy's coming for us. But we know how this story ends. And we can walk in the victory of knowing Jesus Christ. So what comfort are you going to have to release in order to faithfully follow him? Third question, final question for us today. Will you answer the call regardless of the cost? I'm going to close this morning with where we started. It's the life and the example of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who we're going to continue to look at more in depth over the next couple of weeks. What is the cost of discipleship? Well, he answers that question in his book. Spoiler alert, this is the point. He writes, salvation is free. That's good news, amen? Salvation's free. But discipleship will cost you your life. Salvation is free, but discipleship will cost your life. Salvation is the benefit, right? That's what everybody wants. Everybody wants to be forgiven. Everybody wants to be healed. Everybody wants to be saved. Everybody wants to be delivered. And man, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ offers us to that, uh, that to us freely. He, he offers to us freely, cost him everything. He offers us freely this gift of salvation as a free gift of grace that if we would, in faith, believe in his perfect life, death, and resurrection, Repent of our sins, turn from our sins and follow him. He offers us as a free gift of grace, eternal life, 
Salvation is free. That's the benefit. But discipleship will cost you everything. That's the cost. You know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer would come to learn this fully through his own life and his own example. To understand that these words from Bonhoeffer Church, it's not a pithy, clever cliche that's made for Twitter. This is something that Bonhoeffer himself would go on to fully experience. The work that the Lord called him to continually separated him from his friends, from his family, from safety, from comfort. He was imprisoned in the end. All of this would, com- would, would cost him his life. He was implicated in an assassination attempt against Hitler. Just a fascinating life that he lived as a prophet, as a pastor, as a martyr, as a spy. And he would come to understand what it meant to, to pay the full cost of discipleship. On April 8, 1945, just shortly before World War II ended, he was led out to the yard of the Flossenburg concentration camp. Here he was stripped naked and he was publicly hanged alongside six others. Friends, there's no version, there's no version of following Jesus that's going to cost you less than everything that you have. And I fear where so many of us, particularly here in the Bible Belt South, the space that we have become comfortable in, or at least the space that we're seeking out, I fear that for many of us here today, you're waiting on Jesus to go on sale. Like you're just holding out, holding out, holding out, holding out on following Jesus. And you're, you're, just, you're just convinced, you've deceived yourself into believing one day you're going to find him a little bit cheaper than where we find him here this morning. And, and I fear that this is, this is what will happen because that's happening all over our, our culture today. Is, is for so many professing Christians, what they're going to do is they're going to hop from place to place, church to church, until they find the church that has put Jesus on sale. And they'll tell their friends, oh, look, I found him cheaper over here. You can get the benefit, but you don't have to pay the cost. I get Jesus. I get salvation. I also get to keep my sin. And I get to keep my comfort. And I get to keep my material. I get to keep my family idolatry. I get to keep all these things. I can keep putting all these things in front of Jesus. And man, he's just totally cool with this. And churches that will just, just work overdrive, just trying to soften the edges of, of everything that Jesus is calling us to here. Church, Jesus isn't going on sale. He's not going on sale. There's not like a different version of Jesus that you can follow that's not going to cost you this. And man, if that's the version of Jesus you've been following, you haven't yet followed the real Jesus. You've claimed the benefit, but you haven't been willing to pay the cost. When we do this, when we try to get Jesus on sale, when we try to offer him at a discount, we cheapen the grace of God. We cheapen God's grace when we want the benefit of the free gift of salvation without a willingness to pay the cost of discipleship. There is no version of following Jesus that will not cost you everything, but friends, this is what we'll find. In the end, we will find that giving up everything to follow Jesus will be more than worth any price that we might pay. I said it last week. I'm going to say it this week. I'm going to say it again for the next couple of weeks. There is no one who has ever paid the cost of discipleship, who has ever regretted paying the price. What we leave behind in this world does not hold a candle to the wind of what we will find in Jesus Christ. And today, no matter what the cost is that he's calling you to pay, you can be confident that you're gonna find something so much greater and of infinite worth in return. So you bow your heads with me this morning as we close. I just wanna read those three questions for us again. Will you move when he calls or will you stay with the crowd? 
What comfort do you need to lay down at the call to follow him? And will you answer that call regardless of the cost? If you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, I hope you will hear him calling you to himself today. Follow me. Leave your sin behind. Leave the world behind. Turn from your sin. Trust in him. Believe that he is enough. You will never be enough. This world will never be enough, but Jesus is enough. He is what he offers you. Turn from your sin. Call on his name in faith and be saved. Follow Jesus. Lay down your life before him because he is worthy of your life. The one who gave himself for you is worthy of you giving yourself to him. And for those of us who do profess to be followers of Jesus, listen, what what shift do you need to make today? Have you been pretending that, man, he's just some other teacher and you you just missed that he is the son of man? What's keeping you in the crowd? What, What comforts are you holding on to that's keeping you from faithfully and boldly and courageously stepping out in faith to call him wherever, to follow him wherever he leads and call on him as he calls you? So Father, we lay ourselves before you today as we come to the table for communion. Help us to be honest in confessing our sins. Will you give us a heart of true and genuine repentance so that we could turn from our sin, that we could leave our sin behind and leave this world behind, leave behind anything that is a hindrance that's keeping us from following you with all that we are. Help us to count the cost today. Help us to count the cost of discipleship and see that you are worth it. That no matter what it costs us, no matter the price we have to pay, we receive an infinitely greater value in return because we receive you. So Father, as we pray, as we sing, as we confess, as we repent, as we respond, as you lead us today, let it all be a sweet fragrance to you the worship and praise and response of your people from this place. Help it to come from our hearts. Help us to honor you with all that we are. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for salvation. Thank you for the benefit. Empower us and embolden us to pay the cost. Receive glory and honor in all things now. We ask this in Jesus' name and everyone said, amen.